Hello and welcome to a new episode of On Translation. Today we are going to talk about the translation of one of the most famous literary works in the Western canon, The Odyssey, a poem about identity and homecoming, a poem about being lost and eventually finding yourself and finding home. The Odyssey, of course, is the epic journey of one of the most celebrated of all travelers, Ulysses or Odysseus. The story is a meditation on storytelling itself. And it is often said that there are two types of people, Odyssey people and Iliad people. On this episode, I'm going to interview an Odyssey person, Jesse Peart, a former student of mine. Jesse, welcome to On Translation. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I'm just wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about your love of the Odyssey. How did you come to appreciate this work of art? Well, it's actually funny. It, it was first introduced to me when I was in high school. And I always just loved that epic hero cycle, that story of Odysseus. It seemed to, it always seemed to draw me in. Um, I really loved the story, everything that he goes through. And I think it's something we can all learn from in our daily lives. Great. Well, uh, what I'm particularly interested in talking about is the translation, the odyssey of the translation or the journey of translation of the odyssey in English literature. So can you talk a little bit about the place of uh, this epic in English translation? How many times it has been translated? Who are some of the luminaries who attempted translating it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Odyssey, it's been translated into English over 60 times now in, in the last 400 years. The first time it was, I think it was in 1616 with George Chapman. Now at that time, modern English was really still in its infancy. And I believe Chapman really wanted to prove to the world that English was capable of rivaling those great languages like Greek and Latin and its eloquence. So to accomplish this, he was very paraphrasal. He used very highly elevated language. You can think about the language that Shakespeare used. Now, he was Chapman's contemporary. And then also the English used in the King James Bible, which was just written a few years prior. We can see some of Chapman's Christian ideals, but I don't believe it was really his intention to Christianize it. So uh, after Chapman, who is the uh, next influential translator of the Odyssey? Well, next I would say it was about 100 years later. His name was Alexander Pope. In Pope's Odyssey, it was really well known for its melodious beauty, and it was really widely accepted. It was much different, and he was especially opposed to the way that Chapman really over-paraphrased and he endeavored to use a stricter word-for-word -word translation. But like Chapman, both of them, Chapman and Pope, translated from Latin, not the actual original Greek. And Pope also heavily relied on another translation that he used from French. Alexander Pope, of course, is one of the lords of the English language, so famous name there. Who are some of the translators after that? Well, we have Samuel Butler in 1900. And while Pope and Chapman used a poetic meter, um, Samuel Butler translated the Odyssey into prose, and in his case, it was done from the original Greek. This brought the text one step closer to Homer. And another thing Butler did was he really strayed away from his predecessor's elevated English that they used. And along with his use of prose, it really made it highly accessible to a broader audience. The language being simpler to understand by the layman. And I talked on, on this episode about uh, the Bible translation before. That, you know, how the Bible was sometimes translated through what we call a bridge language or relay language, so through Latin, because it became the most 
influential language. Same happened here. It took a while for translators to go back to the original language of Greek and Hebrew. In our case now, it's Greek, of course, classical Greek. All right. Who's next after Samuel Butler? Well, I figure we can move on to some more modern translators. Uh, Robert Fitzgerald is well known. Uh, he translated the Odyssey in 1961. And it quickly really became a modern style favorite. We still use it today in our classrooms. And while Chapman and Pope and even Butler at times, they really use language to us, it, it really feels outdated. So Fitzgerald writes in a register that's much more familiar to us. And he's an accomplished poet, and that shows in his version of the Odyssey. Fitzgerald's translation is still often used in educational settings today. I think I know the name that is coming next. Uh, one of the most celebrated modern or contemporary translations of the Odyssey. It's very exciting. Uh, Emily Wilson, she was the first woman to translate the Odyssey. Uh, and it was in 2018. So, I mean, it was just a few years ago. You know, Odysseus, he really lives in a vastly male-dominated world. And it's intriguing to see how a woman, a modern woman, portrays this world. And Wilson's Odyssey has been greatly successful. Okay. Maybe uh, before we uh, move on, just to give the listeners a feel for the language of some of these versions you mentioned, I ask you to prepare the opening lines of these major translations. So do you mind reading some of the opening lines of some of the versions you have mentioned here? Yeah, absolutely. I got them all right here. First, I have Chapman, um, who again, he was the first one in 1616, and he opens the Odyssey with the man... O muse, inform that many a way, wound with his wisdom to his wished stay, that wandered wondrous far when he the town of sacred Troy had sapped and shivered down. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Of course, it has this kind of rhythm and, and rhyme and bite of the uh, archaic language. I think it's still uh, understandable, at least as far as the opening lines are concerned. What about Alexander Pope, who was a renowned poet himself? How does his opening lines read? Yeah, so Pope's first lines uh, begin with, The man for wisdom's various arts renowned, long exercised in woes, O muse, resound, who, when his arms had wrought the destined fall of sacred Troy and raised her heaven-built wall. Very much like uh, the heroic couplets of uh, Alexander Pope himself. Maybe he was using the poetic genius of Homer here as a channel for his own poetic expression. All right. Uh, what about Butler? So Butler, and this is the first prose we're going to see, is tell me, O muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. Yeah, much more direct, simpler to understand. And as you uh, pointed out, it's prosaic in the sense of being uh, not attempting to cast itself in a poetic form or follow a certain uh, rhyme scheme. Okay, who's next? Uh, next we have Robert Fitzgerald in 1961. His lines read, Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story. And that man skilled in all ways of contending, the wanderer harried for years on end after he plundered the stronghold on the proud height of Troy. Finally, Emily Wilson. How does her opening lines read? They read, Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and he was lost, when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy. 
Very interesting. Uh, of course, this uh, notion of a complicated man was commented on a lot. If you notice, all of them refer to the skill or talent or wisdom of Odysseus in different ways. Man skilled in all ways of contending is a man for wisdom of various arts renowned. But Wilson chose to render this notion as complicated man, right? I think she basically says we need to look more at Odysseus. This is very complicated. He has a very complicated character. Um, so we should listen to the story and understand Odysseus further. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting choice here, an interesting phrase. Perhaps some would argue it's more faithful to the original uh, than the other translation. Next question I have is about translating classics in general. To be a classic work means to, to bear out many translations. Uh, the question, of course, is uh, why? Why is that the case? Why do we keep translating classic works? The Odyssey, of course, being a case in point, as you mentioned, has been translated more than 60 times in, uh, in English uh, in about 400 years. So why retranslate? Why the different versions of translations? Well, there could be many different ways to answer that question. I mean, with the Odyssey, there's, there's not really an authority over Homer's epics. Definitely much less than the Bible, which you brought up earlier. Um, and Homer is, I mean, he's the public domain. So translators, they're really free to publish their own interpretations of the Odyssey. But with that being said, Greek and English are tremendously different languages. Differences in the language, the culture, the worldview, it can really create obstacles for these translators. And it's up to them how they overcome these obstacles. And how they do that can really be up for debate. And we should definitely debate that and talk a little bit about some of the illustrating examples of these obstacles. I mean, language evolves and uh, translators try to cast the classics in, in, in a more accessible language to their contemporaries. Translators uh, inject themselves in the translation and uh, or read or find different interpretations. So all these reasons, of course, contribute to the numerous translations. That is a hallmark of classic works. So you talked about obstacles and overcoming them. So can you provide some examples of the translation of obstacles? Yeah, um, specifically with the Odyssey, the central motif of the Odyssey, that's the driving force of the evolving morality of Odysseus, it's constantly referred to throughout the epic. Um, we know it as Xenia. It's a Greek word, and it represents the relationship between two Xenoi, or in its singular form, Xenos. And it's, it's like a friendship, or just a mutual, initially a mutual respect between a guest and a host. Now, in those times, it was feared by many Greeks that Zeus, who is the protector of Xenoi, that he might come down to their door in, in his disguise and request accommodation. So it was really the duty of a host to invite strangers in for fear of repercussions from Zeus. And once this relationship was established, it grew really into deeper relationships, and then it extended through their descendants. And we see examples of this when Telemachus tra travels to the home of Menelaus and Old Nestor, and then when a disguised Odysseus is invited into his own home. So hence, Xenos can be interpreted as friend, can be foreigner, guest, host, stranger, but it's that 
it includes all of these words within the one. And hospitality can describe this idea of Zania, but it's not sufficient to really capture its whole meaning. Are there any other examples? Oh, one I always like to think of is the Greeks have many different words for love. You know, we really only use one word, and when we say we love someone, it can mean many different things. Love them as a friend, love them romantically or, you know, empathetically, or just like uh, agape was one of the words used a lot in the Bible about Jesus's universal love. We are talking now about semantic notions of complex words and finding appropriate synonyms for them. Are there any other issues you could talk about that are not just confined to the notion of the complexity of semantic meaning? What are some of the other issues besides complex semantic words that can be good examples for obstacles in translation? Oh, okay. So another issue that comes to light sometimes is the literary form. Now, John Dryden, who's a big name when it comes to English translation theory and in literary criticism, he assigned 10 rules in the 17th century that literary translators need to follow. His first rule was to be a poet if you want to translate poetry, and that that really creates a problem for these translators. I mean, how can you maintain a poetic form if you're trying to translate word for word? It could be really difficult to do so within the confines of lined meters. Or you could go the route that Samuel Butler did and translate into prose. You could say his translation was very successful as it made it into Encyclopedias Britannica's great books of the Western world, and that sealed it into the literary canon. But some would say that Homer in prose form is not an accurate translation, so translators attempt different styles with different meters. But this requires paraphrasing. But it's poetry. Now, George Chapman, as I said, really believed in using this paraphrase extensively, at points stretching just a couple lines in a 10, sometimes even 20. He really defended this method. He said not to follow the number and order of words, but the material things themselves, and and sentences to wait diligently, and to clothe and adorn them with words. Now, he believed that you need to maintain the elegancy and the invention of Homer, and in his view, that could be best accomplished by expanding his lines. Some more reasons include that our language and our culture, it's just, it's always changing. I mean, the past can be like a foreign country to us and and their speech and what they value and their culture. Emily Wilson's translation, we can see some of those changes in our modern social values. She uses words like servant with slave. And at one point when referring to a slave woman's beauty, she uses the word rank. So you think that's that's actually capturing the spirit of what was meant in Homer's original? Well, I think it's just a way, another way of understanding the word. When she says rank to um, indicate beauty, that really was what established the rank of a slave woman. If she was more beautiful, then she would be more highly accepted by her masters. They would treat her better. So if she lost her beauty, she might, in fact, lose her rank. So that is, I would say, a justifiable translation for the word. What else did Wilson, what kind of innovation did she introduce in the language of her translation? Well, one thing that really stuck out to me was she named her chapters, or like the different books of um, the Odyssey. There's 24 books, so she had 24 different names for them all. One of them, when Odysseus 
comes to meet Polyphemus, the Cyclops, she calls it the pirate in a shepherd's cave. So she was basically indicating that Odysseus was the pirate and Cyclops was the shepherd. And the Cyclops, he's always been called a monstrous savage and a barbarian in all the translations that we've read. But she uses this word shepherd. Now she does these things, I think, to shed a little more light on the secondary characters to unveil some aspects of meaning that was harder to see before. She would argue that she hasn't changed the story, only broadened our view. The servants were slaves. A woman's beauty was, was very important to her success, um, especially the slave women. And foreigners, like we look at the Cyclops, were looked at as less than citizens. The word savage still has that unpleasant feel to us because of I mean, our ties to American colonialism. And barbarian, which is kind of funny because today we usually connect it with uncivilized people. And in most instances, kind of as a derogatory term. But it actually comes from the Greek barbaros. And they used it to describe only non-Greek speaking persons. Yeah, those who just sounded to their ears like they were saying bar, 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 right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What else can you can you add about Wilson's translation? Well, she also made it her goal to translate wheel English. She was really against all the elevated language that has been used to translate with, you know, Pope and um, Chapman. She called it a show of noisy linguistic fireworks in that. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Uh, reading some of her interviews, and she she wrote that it was stylistic pomposity, and it was entirely unhomeric, and that is a direct contrast to what Chapman believed. So we're getting many different views of what the Odyssey should actually be. Yeah, maybe uh, could you put Chapman and Wilson and other translators in exposition with each other to kind of point out the differences. I don't know if you have a good example for that. Uh, yeah, the um, when Odysseus went to meet the Cyclops in Book 9, it was when Odysseus escapes the now blinded Cyclops and yells at him from within his ship. Chapman has him say in English, Cyclop, thou shouldest not have so much abused thy monstrous forces to oppose their least against a man, a marshal, and a guest and eat his fellows, thou mightest not know where some ills lie behind, rude swing for thee to bear, that feared not to devour thy guests and break all laws of humans. Jove sends therefore reek, and all gods by me. Yeah, it sounds a little hard to understand. Let's see, uh, maybe a more straightforward, direct version. Yeah, so here's Butler's um, direct translation of the same lines. Cyclops, said I, you should have taken better measure of your man before eating up his comrades in your cave. You wretch, eat up your visitors in your own house. You might have known that your sin would find you out. And now Zeus and the other gods have punished you. And Wilson? Hey, you, Cyclops, idiot. The crew trapped in your cave did not belong to some poor weakling. Well, you had it coming. You had no shame at eating your own guests. And so Zeus and other gods have paid you back. Yeah, I think these are really good examples that shows uh, how colloquial and more straightforward Emily Wilson's language is kind of resonates with a modern American or English-speaking reader. So, so yeah, what, what can you say about these uh, 
uh, differences in translation. Well, you can really tell how Chapman expanded his lines. His his is a lot longer than Wilson's and Butler's. And that shows how much more he paraphrased and lengthened his Odyssey. And then with Chapman and Butler, the Cyclops, he really seemed to deserve what happened to him. With Wilson's, Odysseus seems more like a bully, calling the Cyclops an idiot. Uh, he called him a weakling. And then he, he didn't really acknowledge that his eating of his guests was a sin or a law against all humans like Chapman and Butler did. All right. Well, uh, final thoughts about the impact of the Odyssey uh, in translation. Well, I think the Odyssey is really important. It's It's been very influential for English literature. It doesn't only just open a window into the thoughts and actions of this legendary man who lived over a thousand years before English was even spoken, but it introduces into our culture today the first recorded example, the epic hero cycle, this hero's journey. And we see this hero's journey everywhere in, in our literature, like To Kill a Mockingbird and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. We see it in movies like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then The Hunger Games. It also has that epic hero journey. Um, and th that was a movie and a book. There are a series of books. It, so it's all over the place. Odysseus, he's a very well-known character, and it's because of these translations. And he's known in many different cultures. He's a hero that we can all relate to in one way or another, but he makes mistakes. And we make mistakes, and he faces many setbacks. But it's because he learns from these mistakes, and with his growth and his wisdom, against all odds, he returns home to his family, and he returns the hero. And more importantly, he becomes a better person in the end. Thank you very much, uh, Jesse, for this very informative uh, discussion. And I enjoyed very much uh, analyzing some of the translational aspects of the Odyssey with This has yeah. been an episode on translation. See you next time.